Welcome to the Hotel Analyst podcast and we have a special for you this week as we are joined by Simon Allison, CEO of Hoftel um, and I'll pass you over to my colleague Andrew Sankser, the Editorial Director of Hotel Analyst to explain why and perhaps open debate. Simon, welcome to the show. Um, we've, we've brought you on to talk about um, your two forthcoming events, uh, AOHIS coming up imminently um, the end of this month and um, um, GeoHIS at the beginning of March. And perhaps you can just give us a quick overview of both of those. Yes, yeah, so as you know, Andrew, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, always a pleasure to be here. I know people avidly listen to these podcasts, so uh, it's great to be talking to you. Yeah, we, we run, as you know, three owner-based hotel investment conferences, one in Madrid, one in Abu Dhabi, one in Bangkok. The Madrid one, the Atlantic Ocean Hotel Investor Summit, is coming up next week on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, despite the name, I think about 60% or so of the people who go are not actually from Iberia. Uh, we have people from all over Europe. We even have people from, from, from Africa and Latin America because it's an Atlantic event. Uh, and then we have our Middle East one, Gulf and Indian Ocean Hotel Investors Summit on the 4th and 5th of March in Abu Dhabi. Super. Great. So I thought we'd um, start, I mean, if you put your old investment banker hat on um, when, <laughs> back in the day when you were at JP Morgan, Simon, and just talk about what the market is like. An in, in intriguing question of deal flow. I was just looking at some data. Um, we were both at a presentation last week um, by Whitebridge, and they were showing how um, actually last year was as, uh, the worst um uh, year for transaction volume since 2013 um or if we t take out the um absolute aberration of 2020 um because of covid that is yeah. um so over that sort of decade it, it's been you know last year was a truly grim year um it, it does seem that this has now changed certainly towards the end of last year and now as we come back um we've just had one of the biggest ever um hotel transactions announced in the uk with the um one billion dollar getting on for 800 million pounds worth of uh, assets that uh, starwood capital are buying off um, edwardian um 10 um uh, business class hotels um we've we've had uh rf hotels um getting a 49 percent um stake um sold to the saudi public investment fund um we've got a you know a whole bunch of other uh smaller deals as well um which does seem to suggest that maybe maybe i don't say it's a damn breaking but we're, we're seeing a lot more flow than we were seeing um is your sense that we're about to see a big pickup in deal flow I don't know how big it'll be, but I think there's definitely a sea change going on. You know, if you look back to 23, you had really three different things going on. You had you had owners of hotels who'd seen a top line rebound vastly bigger than anybody expected. Uh, and in some cases, bottom lines being also at pretty good levels. And, and, and so their, their price expectations, if they were selling, were really quite high. You had buyers looking at costs rapidly catching up and in some cases exceeding the growth in revenues uh, from, from everything, right? From utilities, from labor uh, and, and supplies and so on. So you had buyers being a little bit nervous about trading. And then, of course, you had the massive hike in interest rates and then geopolitical uncertainty on top of it. So you had lots of good reasons why the buyer-seller spread was pretty big and deals weren't happening. And really, the only people who were making deals happen to any 
large scale or at any large scale were the sovereign wealth funds. And you were seeing, you know, things like the GIC deal with, with, with hotel investment partners in Spain, you know, big deals. Um, you know, Adia buying, buying a portfolio from Melia. And of course, these guys have long-term views and, you know, they can do all equity deals if they want to. So they were in the driving seat. Uh, now you're seeing utility costs coming down, labor costs not rising as sharply, uh, revenue stabilizing, not, not really going down in many places. So, so, so your trading performance is much, much clearer. And obviously, you've got hopefully the beginning of a, of a relatively long and uh, predictable fall in interest rates. So that's allowing, I think, other people to come back into the picture. And, you know, the fact that Starwood Cap is you know, one of the archetypal opportunity funds believes now is a good time to do a deal. I think that says that the, the mood, the mood in 24 will be different. Uh, but of course, you've still got lots of headwinds. You know, you've got, you've got wars breaking out that are far worse than we imagined a year ago. Ukraine's still going on, the Middle East a mess. Uh, you've got a potential Trump presidency um, that will is bound to cause significant uncertainty. So um, I do think that the, the, the nature of players will change back to maybe what it was pre-COVID. But I'm not sure the deal flow will go through the roof yet. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk, um, uh, particularly among the brokers, not surprisingly, who are desperate to get the deals <laughs> flowing. Um, but in terms of, you know, we will see a few things pushed over the over the line in terms of distress. Um, not so much actually um, being put into receivership, but um, the borrower effectively being told, look, you've got to take action here to cure your capital stack. You've got to do something. You're, you've, you're over leveraged and your only way out either an injection of equity or you're going to have to trade. Do you think that is really going to be a, a key driver of, of things in this year? Actually, one of the first sessions we have at AHS is exactly that. Will, will this be the year the banks stop extending and pretending and start pushing some difficult buttons? Uh, I think it's bound to happen to some degree. Uh, I think, you know, for, for banks, if, if values are really trash, you, unless you can avoid it, you really don't want to foreclose. But if you can see that you're going to get a reasonable value and, you know, if you were lending at 65% loan to value, you know, you might get all your money back now. So, yes, I think banks will start uh, start pulling the trigger. Mm. And, and and from a, a lending perspective, I guess, it, if if they want to start pulling the trigger, they've also got to be prepared to put some money out there in the market. So it, And it's not just been a case of it being more expensive, the debt, but just frankly being unavailable. I mean, despite every um, retail banker I listen to on a stage over the last few years are saying, yes, we're open for business. Everybody I talk to who's one of their customers tell me... <laughs> No, not so much. Um, and, uh, you know, this this is the issue, right? So, I mean, do, do you actually think we're going to start seeing a little bit more debt out there? I think we have to. I mean, I'm a, you know, I was a CFO, right? And I remember at, at Hospitality Europe, going back however many years, 15 years, uh, we would normally borrow at 65% loan to value on a seven-year loan with a 15-year amortization profile at a spread of about 125. And I was quite interested in our members summit we had in Stockholm, which Pandoc hosted, and you know, we're, we're not really a conference company, we're a hotel owners association. So we, we have an annual meeting and, and, and there, I hadn't quite picked up on the fact that senior, senior debt is now basically at 50% loan to value. Um, which means if you're a mezzanine lender, and it has been fascinating how many people are now becoming mezzanine lenders, and including some just straight hotel owning groups putting their money out, um, you can put a 15% mezzanine in and you're still only back to 65%. So at some point, I think the bank is going to start saying, well, hang on, you know, I'm allowing someone else 
to take a much bigger spread to make the overall debt structure much riskier, rather than me simply going back to where I was before on values that are probably lower. Um, and, and, and getting back to a more normal debt profile. So I think it's almost inevitable. I mean, obviously, lending bankers are cautious and, and you know, they do things a bit slower than the Goldman Sachs and the, the Starwood Gaps. But I would be quite surprised if, if debt levels weren't creeping back up to something a bit more normal. Mm. I mean, a key problem has been that they're lending on interest coverage ratio rather than LTV. I mean, I, I've talked to some borrowers who've, who've got LTVs of, you know, sub 40%, even in, in some cases below 30%, and they still can't get any money and, and get refinanced. So um, it, it's that piece which has got to change. And I think one of the challenges you have, as we've just mentioned, is that while the top line is continuing to grow, we, we've got this, this challenge on the bottom line um in that that's not growing that well and it's not likely to grow that well so i'm, I'm just wondering how much improvement we're going to see on the affordability piece to allow a bit more debt coming back into the market well it, it, it doesn't look like it's coming from operations as you just said um i think you know i i mean clearly what happened and it was fascinating to look at some of some of hot stats figures for the middle east you know there were massive slashings of costs uh, during COVID. The Middle East has more or less held on to at least some of that. Mm. In, my, my understanding is in Europe and Asia, a lot of those costs have gradually crept back into the business. Now, I suspect at some point, owners and even operators are going to start saying, actually, you know what, we've, we've repadded too quickly. And we need to start losing some of that. Uh, F&B is, is a big problem. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what people do about that unless customers get used to spending rather more, which I have to say, when you go out to a restaurant now, you are spending rather more. So that may be happening. Um, but look, in the end, it, it probably is just the gradual decline in interest rates that make debt service coverages and interest coverage ratios better. Mm. Because I don't think it is going to come just from, from the day-to-day -day operations. Mm. And I mean, the, you know, rates have still, I mean, rates have done amazing things. And again, you have to question if that can keep going. I, I'm, I'm not sure it can. And, and indeed, in most markets, it isn't, apart from Hong Kong, which is rebounding very fast suddenly. Uh, you know, Singapore's stopped growing, London stopped growing, Madrid's growing a little bit. Um, you know, markets are starting to pause for breath. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Hong Kong thing is still the the recovery from China, yes, it is. Of course. Yes, it is. So yeah. I mean, that's where yeah. that, that's coming from. And we see just seeing a sort of a more normal level of growth in those other markets you you reference there. I would suggest we've had the we've had those sort of super tailwinds, um, uh, and they've 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 gone. Um, an interesting bit. I mean, certainly something that's going to be a big feature at um, in Madrid, um, Simon, at, at your event is is what's going on at the moment with the Spanish owners. Um, so that they're they've been on shall we say a bit of a journey um, in in terms of how they're looking at the business and how they want to approach the business. Well, it's historically it's always been completely vertically integrated. So they own the brand, they own the operations, and they own the real estate. Um, and and they've very experienced dealing with the wholesalers but now they're trying to um, get into the the free and independent traveler market um, and they're sort of reviewing what they're up to aren't they yes they are i mean you you've seen this you saw it in the caribbean really first um, and it's now the spanish brands that are kind of adopting the same model so you know spanish brands are famously parsimonious they are very good at controlling costs far far better than the big american global global brands and that's really been their, their unique selling point. You know, they, they, they sell their business through wholesalers who obviously eat a bit of the top line. 
but then they, they control their costs superbly. And I think as COVID hit, and, and even a little bit before COVID hit, they were realizing that the pattern of travel is changing. There is a lot more independent travel, a lot more low-cost airlines. You know, it's not exactly new news. Uh, but what I think has changed is that they've basically come to the conclusion that they aren't going to be able to compete on the top line. Uh, for these independent travelers. They don't have the massive loyalty programs. They don't have the massive corporate programs and so on. So, you know, you saw Playa, for example, teaming up with Hyatt and Hilton and putting their brands on the all-inclusives. Um, you saw uh, Sunwing Blue Diamond Hotels teaming up with Marriott. Uh, you saw, obviously, last year, a very big deal of Iberostar becoming a brand of Intercontinental uh, without any sort of, you know, sort of M&A transaction there. Um, you've actually just seen another Spanish brand, Circatel, doing a distribution agreement with Choice. So I think what you're getting is that the Spanish brands are, are almost white labeling themselves in terms of their distribution. Uh, equally, though, of course, you have to bear in mind that the big U.S. brands didn't necessarily have very strong wholesaler relationships. And so the, the Spanish brands and the all-inclusive brands can, can bring that element into the business for those guys. So you're getting basically two entirely different distribution streams uniting, and you know, that ought to have a pretty significant effect on the top line. Uh, but, but obviously it has a strategic element as well, because if you're then becoming more and more dependent on, on other people for your distribution, um, you know, that slightly changes where you're, where you're taking your company. Mm. And also, it seems to me there's a bit of a sort of generational shift going on within these owning companies. They're going on to the next generation and they're coming at it with a fresh set of eyes, whereas perhaps the founders said, well, this is the way we do it. This is the way we've set up. And now the next generations are coming in and there's succession issues in some companies' cases. Um, and this is, I think, one of the motivations for change. Would you agree? I think it probably is. And I, I also think that they've, they've also realized that they weren't necessarily maximizing their real estate. So you've had Melia doing doing deals selling to Adia. Uh, you've had Palladium splitting themselves into two, a real estate arm and a management company and trying to impose that separate discipline on each. Uh, and yes, I think there is a degree of, of generational change that's driving this, for mm. sure. Mm. Um, where do those mid-tier brands go um the likes of melia and nh and and so forth i mean because they're sort of caught in a way um in in a netherworld aren't they you've on the one hand you've got the global giants with their huge loyalty schemes and on the other hand you've got the small boutique focus players um and if you're a melia you're an nh you seem to be for my money caught between those those two Yes, but you're not necessarily in a bad place either. You know, you have got your very tight cost control, and obviously NH being bought by Miner isn't going to change that. I mean, Miner is also uh, yeah, very good at bottom line management. Um, you don't have the costs of running these enormous programs. You don't necessarily upset your owners. I mean, if you're, if you're a nice resort in a nice location, you're always a bit nervous about the redemption program you get from the big brands mm -hmm. and what you're going to get for it. So you don't have to put people into all of that. Uh, so I think there is a way forward for these guys. And I think it might be quite a, quite a positive way. You know, you're, you're, you're allowing the big brands to sell your FIT business and you're, you're keeping control of everything. Because, you know, this is not management takeovers. This is, this is quasi-franchises. So um, I think it can be a win-win, actually. What, what I think is interesting is, is where you go if you're a small brand. Because there was a time, let's face it, when if you had... 10 hotels and you were planning to grow to 20 or 30, you sort of dreamt that you could become a big boy one day or a big girl one day. 
But now I think that I don't think anybody in that position believes that anymore. You're basically gearing up to be sold to one of you know to Accor or to to, to Marriott or to Hyatt. Um, so it has been interesting looking at, for example, in the Middle East. We when, when we started Jihis back in 2016, we had a new kids on the block session, and I, you may have been you may have been to one or two of those, mm. um, where we had companies that were quite well known in their own markets, but not really very well known globally. And we were trying to get them to meet international investors. And a lot of those guys who, you know, had eight hotels, 10 hotels, and we we thought would by now have doubled, many of them have disappeared or shrunk to nearly nothing. So essentially, if you're starting up a hotel group, and you're trying to grow it, you're probably doing it with the aim of selling it rather than with the aim of floating it or growing it into something big. Which means basically the big guys are going to stay big, the, the, the medium guys are going to stay medium, and the small guys are just going to get eaten. Yeah, yeah, but it's also that the, there is a bit of that mid-sized squeeze happening as well, isn't there? If you if you look at some of the the, the growth that you're seeing, it it's it's the big the big chains are the ones which are really motoring right now. It's the Hilton, it's the Marriotts, um, which are really pulling away. Um, whereas, you know, that, those mid-sized players, not so much. It's, uh, it's, it's a struggle for them because if you're an owner and you're going there, what, what's the, the, the brand power, the brand offer that you have as a, a mid-sized player? Well, I mean, it, it's partly in the contract. And as you know, Hoftel is, is very hot on this. And it, it's very hard to, to break the line that says the biggest brands have the least owner, least user-friendly contracts <laughs> in terms of control. And the smaller brands generally offer you something much better. But also bear in mind that these guys still use their own balance sheet. You know, not everyone is committed to asset light. Um, and particularly at the luxury end, what's been fascinating is these sovereign wealth funds are buying companies which are asset heavy and they will use their money to keep them asset heavy. You know, Citizen M is buying its own assets. Rocco Forti is buying its own assets. Uh, Sun Ecos is buying its own assets or building its own assets. And, you know, the return on a, a large owned asset is still a, a lot more than you're going to get from many, many, many franchise agreements. So, you know, yes, if you're looking at, you know, numbers of units, then of course, the, the, the Melias, the Barcelos, the, the NHs, they're not keeping, keeping pace with the, with the leaders. But if you're looking at actual cash production, I'm not sure the story is quite that simple. That's an interesting take on the whole NUG debate, the net unit growth debate. So um, just, just going back to your um, golf um, piece there, I mean, one of the big things, well, the big story in the golf, I guess, is the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the incredible level of investment that's going in. I mean, the numbers thrown about are just mind-boggling, sort of $1 trillion US dollars plus in terms of investment in assets, these incredible new cities springing up in the desert. Um, is it the only story that's there? I mean, it's not the only story that's there by any means. I mean, obviously, you've got Ras al Khaimah doing lots of interesting things coming up with the, the Wing Casino. You've got Dubai continually reinventing itself. You've got Abu Dhabi with its cultural side. Um, you've obviously still got the natural beauty of Amman and so on. So it's not the only game in town by any means. Uh, but yeah, a trillion dollars is, I don't know about your standards, Bandrew, but by mine, it's quite <laughs> a lot of money. Uh, and uh, yeah, and they're deploying it you know, pretty intelligently. Now, how much of it comes, how quickly and, and, and how good it ends up being, you know, obviously is yet to be proven. But I think the ambitions there, that the amount of talent Saudi has drawn in is extraordinary. I mean, I think every second person I knew in the Middle East over the last 10 years is now working in, in, in the kingdom. Um, and, and they've got the resources to back it up. So, 
Um, as I was saying to you, I think for, 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 the, for the first resorts which are opening, which are mostly a Red Sea and Neom, and uh, I mean, obviously, Diria will come too, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, basically, it's basically leisure. And I think, you know, it's markets like the Maldives that need to watch out on the Seychelles because Saudi's a lot nearer um, and the new resorts will, will, will get a lot of interest. So there's going to be a bit, a bit of a battle there. Um, and I, I, I don't know if the established markets are quite woken up to that, but I think they are now. Mm. Do you think that the, the, the sort of um, the, the strategy that the Saudis are deploying is that going to pay? I mean, you look at somewhere like Dubai; it was that stopover market that really got it on the map, and now it's become a destination in its own right. Well, clearly, Saudi is such a huge territory that it's not really a stopover market. It's uh, you know it, 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 they're having to go straight in with the whole destination in its own right straight away. It, it, is that capable of doing that? They're investing huge amounts in airlift, but uh, um, what they're not going to be able to get, I would suggest, is that that throughput which you know Emirates delivered, which uh, um, Etihad delivered, um, and um, in 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 you know, and if you look at Qatar as well. No, I mean airlift often often follows the trend rather than leading it. The airlines are actually quite conservative. I remember when I was at Six Senses, the the Maldives didn't have a direct British Airways flight till about ten years ago. So, if the resorts are nice enough and customers are demanding it, the airlift will come. Uh, but you're right; it definitely isn't a stopover market. It is it is not competing with that. It is competing with places like the Maldives, right, um, or Morocco, say, or, or Turkey. So. You know, they're going to have to do a good job. Obviously, you know, there's still some some historic issues which may hold it back as a destination. There's obviously the, the whole issue of whether alcohol will be permitted, uh, which is, is going to be an issue, an issue for some people. Um, but, you know, bear in mind there's the, the, you know, there's the spa resorts and yoga resorts all around the world where, where drink is not necessarily what people are going for. So it's not necessarily a killer. Um, and if you look at just the sheer quality of what's being built, certainly for the very top end of the market, you know, people who can afford it have curiosity and they are going to want to go and see an experience. And if they get a, a, you know, a, good, a good delivery of a good product, uh, I, think, I think it's going to do well in the end. But, you know, how quickly those things are going to happen, I don't know. And if they were listed companies, they might, they might struggle for a bit. But uh, you do have the power of PIF behind you and I, I think they're going to be OK. Yeah, limitless free capital or almost free capital always helps, doesn't it, I guess? So, um, Simon, th this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much. Um, all the details about your three different events can be found on hoftel.com or go to the individual websites, um, G-I-O-H-I-S.com or um, A-O-H-I-S.co. Yes. It's not com, that one. Yeah, um, yeah we couldn't get com. It had gone to someone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, um, I'm looking forward to seeing you in Madrid and indeed in um, Abu Dhabi in due course. Um, thanks again, Simon. Yeah, th thank you, Andrew. I mean, Madrid, we've got over 100 hotel owning groups coming in a, in a room of about 300 people. So it's going to be, uh, I think, a pretty special event. We're looking forward to it. Brilliant. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Cheers.